Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Between the time I started working on this book and the time I concluded it in summer 2018, dramatic changes took place across the Arab world, particularly in Egypt and Syria. The peaceful protests against tyranny, corruption, and injustice were brutally crushed. The initial and revitalizing moments of hope and pride were dissipated beneath the unrelenting pressure of increased tyranny and violence. The numerous critical voices were systematically marginalized and silenced. Ordinary Egyptians and Syrians were left exposed to the unbridled forces of repression amid the general indifference and at times even complicity of foreign governments. This led me to question the use and meaning of resistance acts in the face of such cruelty and lack of support. It also made me wonder whether documenting those intellectual debates could be in any practical sense meaningful or helpful when buffeted by so much criminality and impunity. Nevertheless, I remain convinced that efforts at analytical lucidity, as manifested in the Tanwir debates, and the moral courage that they required under the most forbidding circumstances, are vivid testimonies of life-affirming human intelligence and dignity. They need to be honored, acknowledged, and made available. They are, in my opinion, valuable sources of inspiration for the future struggles for decency and dignity that are bound to emerge again sooner or later. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Middle East Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and the words you just heard were written by our guest today, Elizabeth Suzanne Kassab. Dr. Kassab is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies in Qatar, where she also heads the philosophy program. Previously, Professor Kassab taught at the American University of Beirut and the University of Belamand in northern Lebanon. She has also been a visiting fellow at several universities and institutions, including Columbia University, the New School, Brown University, the German Orient Institute of Beirut, and many more. In addition to her teaching, Dr. Kassab has written extensively about Arab intellectual history, including her previous book, Contemporary Arab Thought, Culture, Critique, and Comparative Perspective. Uh, but today we will be talking about her latest book, Enlightenment on the Eve of Revolution, the Egyptian and Syrian Debates, which was published this year, 2019, by Columbia University Press. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today, Dr. Kassab. Thank you, Josh, for having me. So we often start by asking authors to introduce themselves and talk about how they came to work on the, the book that we're talking about on the show. Uh, but I wanted to be a little bit more specific uh, with you, if I could, because your previous book, uh, Contemporary Arab Thought, offered an in-depth account of Arab intellectual history from the Nahda uh, through the disillusionment of, of 1967 to roughly the end of the 20th century. And I couldn't help but notice it was, it was published in 2009, uh, I'm sorry, 2009, right before the Arab Spring. 
so I want to ask, uh, did the Arab Spring uprisings make you rethink your previous work at all? How are you uh, building on that? Not really, not really. I've always been interested in ideas and how people reflect on the circumstances they're living in and the experiences they're going through. Uh, I think that the debates I covered in the previous book uh, uh, are exactly that, document the debates that were taking place during those years, mainly between 67 and the turn of the century. Um, So I don't think that the um, new debates uh, put um, my previous reading of uh, the earlier debates in in question, really. Uh, But uh, as I suggest in my book, I think they uh, exacerbate questions that were really already there before the revolutions. And I think it's important to see the continuity Um, in the sense that uh, people have been reflecting on the deteriorating situation of their uh, societies. And um, I think that it is also important to note the discontinuities, i.e. when things suddenly take um, a dramatic turn uh, that was um, um, unforeseen uh, by many, And I think that is the consensus among uh, thinkers uh, following uh, up the the events in the Middle East, in the Arab world. I think many uh, had a sense that something was building up, but no one really uh, was able to foresee uh, what actually took place, namely those massive uh, protests in the Arab streets. So um, the the debates that you're talking about um, that were going on before the the uprisings begin um, focused around uh, a term that you talk about called tanwir. Um, could you explain to our listeners what uh, what this term means and and what is what is the significance of this term? Why tanwir instead of um, you know other Arabic words? You know, tqaddam for progress or or nahta or, or something else. Yeah. Tanwir stands for enlightenment. And uh, I was curious, I mean, I noticed that there there were animated debates on Tanwir, both in um, uh, Cairo and in Damascus, in the two decades, during the two decades that preceded the uh, uh, revolts. Uh, so I was curious to find out what exactly people meant when they used those terms in the debates. So uh, I did not start, uh, if you want, I did not start with a certain understanding of tenuir and then see how it was applied or not applied. Um, no, I, um, I think the exercise I uh, uh, made in writing this book was that of listening. I wanted to pay attention, to listen to those debates and find out what people meant, what they had in mind, what sorts of issues they were preoccupied with. Um, And in that sense, um, come to an understanding of what this term meant to those using them, uh, using it. Uh, in, as I said, in Cairo and then in Damascus. And I don't think that the two debates were related in any sense. When I, when I hear 
enlightenment, that term, uh, I, I automatically think of of Western enlightenment, right? I think of, of Kant and other figures. And you, you talk about this a bit in, in your book as well, drawing some comparisons. Um, so how did the Tanwiris deal with, uh, deal with the West or notions of Western enlightenment, accusations that to even talk about Tanwir is to just sort of import foreign ideas and impose them on, on the Middle East? Clearly, people who were using the term tenwir, enlightenment, had a, a, a sense of the Western enlightenment. In other words, they referred, what their understanding referred to the standard uh, uh, Western enlightenment. And by that, uh, I mean, and they meant um, a, an intellectual movement who was, which was connected to a certain political movement uh, towards uh, rational, rationalization, uh, freedom, um, the use of public uh, uh, reason. And I think that they more or less meant that. But as I say in my book, uh, the debates uh, that took place in Cairo and in uh, Damascus were in no sense an academic elaboration on that. In other words, these debates were not studies or discussions of Western uh, Enlightenment. They were very much concerned with what was happening in Damascus and in Cairo. Um, and uh, um, so beyond that general understanding of Enlightenment as a movement of uh, rationality and freedom, uh, uh, they refer to more concrete uh, realities of uh, Egypt and uh, uh, Syria of the time. I, I found your discussion of uh, of the importance of context rather than just abstract ideas uh, really, really fascinating and important. And, and when I think about intellectual history myself, uh, the debate that exists among historians of whether ideas are important as abstract concepts or whether they should be contextualized. I also tend to be a, a bit more of a contextualist myself. Um, one of the things that they also uh, talk about when thinking about contextualization is is the Nahda, right? And that, that period in the 19th and early 20th centuries of, of Arab literary renaissance, right, uh, for lack of a, a better term. Um, and uh, a lot of the Tanwiris, I noticed, were talking about the importance of considering Nahda ideas in their context, right? But, but clearly the legacy of the Nahda looms largely in both uh, Egypt and Syria. Um, could you talk a, a bit about how some of these Tanwiri figures uh, grapple with the legacy of the Nahda? Yes, this is one of the interesting aspects of these debates, uh, in my opinion. Um, uh, many of them, as I said, uh, refer to their concrete lived experiences of the times, which is primarily uh, related to um, uh, political repression, uh, the actually the destruction of the human being, um, dignity, uh, trust, uh, social relations, um, 
So these people are clearly uh, involved in a political discourse, and this is what I this is why I characterize these debates as uh, referring to uh, some form of a polit a call to a political humanism. And what is interesting is that in this political reaction, if you want, to the political realities, people uh, pay attention, see the importance of intellectual history. In other words, people were saying, look, uh, we have a, an intellectual history of ideas uh, to which we can uh, return and connect to in order to um, anchor our um, struggle in an intellectual manner. In other words, that in our past, uh, with, with the Egyptian or Assyrian say, there were ideas. There was a time when ideas about uh, progress, about rationality, about um, the possibility of a just rule of uh, democracy uh, were circulating and were sort of shaping our public life. Uh, dictatorships came and uh, disconnected us from this legacy. So it's actually part of the movement, part of the um, Syrian and uh, Egyptian enlightenment of the 1990s and 2000 is a call to reconnect with this earlier intellectual legacy. And this I find quite fascinating, how intellectual history uh, and a certain rewriting or a reclaiming of intellectual history can become a tool um, of political protest, of actually human protest. In other words, to say, we want back our dignity. We realized we're being um, oppressed, we're being dehumanized. And part of our resistance to this is to re re recall another intellectual legacy we had uh, and to um, uh, uh, draw on that legacy to strengthen our intellectual uh, uh, awareness and also our values, the values with which we want to resist this uh, unjust dictatorship. So in a sense, the, the Tanweer debates seem to be... Um, not quite a continuation of, of the Nahda, but a sort of uh, a reemergence or a, a revitalization of the Nahda in a, a different, although not entirely unrelated context? I think the circumstances are very different and the, the problems, the struggle uh, 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 is different. In other words, in during the Nahda, you were trying to... Um, uh, envision a certain future for new uh, political entities after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. You were thinking, how am I going to shape my Egypt or the Arab world? Um, what are, how am I going to reshape uh, my economy, my culture, my language? Um, so I think it was a time of uh, hope, a time of... Um, uh, uh, really um, mobilization towards um, shaping uh, new political entities. Uh, in the a century later, well, you got those entities and they turned out to be monsters. Uh, 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 the uh, 
powers that took uh, uh, the reign of these uh, countries, of these states, um, turned them into uh, uh, horrible uh, dictatorships. So actually, uh, already, I think, soon after the uh, post-Ottoman states were established and the post, uh, both post-Ottoman and post-colonialism uh, or mandate uh, rule uh, from the British and the French, say uh, in the 40s and the 50s when most of the Arab states were established, there was, of course, a, a sense of uh, nation-state building. And uh, it, it soon those hopes of uh, nation building were were uh, collapsed and um, people were deeply disillusioned the 1967 uh, 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 defeat came to um uh, uh, ag- aggravate that sense of defeat and disillusionment so by the time you reach the end of the century it's really the failure of the post uh, uh, of the post-colonial or, say, the the post-independence state, that is the big uh, issue. That these states that uh, people wanted to establish as they were uh, constructing their Nada uh, ideas uh, failed. And um, so I think uh, already in the post-67 debate, the big issue is that of the state and the failure of the state. And I think the revolts then come uh, as the um, ultimate, uh, well, not perhaps ultimate since we are where we are today, but uh, really an extreme form of uh, contesting these uh, uh, states. So um, since you've begun alluding to it, one of the things that I noticed uh, in your book, and uh, of course uh, this is true even beyond intellectual history, is how omnipresent uh, both the Egyptian and the Syrian states were. Um, But as you explained in your book, uh, the ways in which uh, both of the, the states perhaps predictably try to uh, suppress or or limit uh, the ability for people calling for Tanwir to be successful in actually implementing meaningful political reforms uh, is is very different, right? Um, so I, I want to just following the order of your book, I want to start with the case of of Egypt. Um, the context of of the, these debates in Egypt seemed to mirror a wider divide in Egyptian politics between Islam or Islamism, political Islam, however you want to call it, uh, and the state, right? And this has been going on, right, since uh, since Nasser and Said Qutub and, I mean, for, for quite some time. But it was uh, particularly noticeable in the last democratic election of, of Egypt, right, between uh, CC on the, or uh, I'm sorry, between a, a an old uh, an old member of the regime and uh, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. On the other hand, um, so how do advocates of Tanwir fit in with the Egyptian state and with uh, Islamist groups like the Muslim Brothers? How do they navigate this binary? Yes, uh, by the 1990s in in Egypt, the polarization was between the state, uh, 
and the uh, political Islam or the violent political Islam, uh, because assassinations had started to take place, uh, explosions. Uh, so the certain certain um, uh, Islamic currents uh, had become violent, were challenging the state, and the state was then. Um, uh, trying to 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 repress this this violence uh in the name of uh, enlightenment values and by that they meant uh, tolerance and rationality and openness and uh, liberties and whatever now so for a long while say in the whole 1990s you have the state um um, leading a campaign of enlightenment and partly uh, by reviving, republishing, re-editing um, uh, works from the Nahda uh, that call for tolerance, that call for rationality. Um, uh, but of course, this state that was uh, leading an enlightenment campaign was itself um, a, a state that had no uh, respect whatsoever to tolerance or to uh, uh, liberties or to rights uh, uh, or to human rights. So in the following decade, uh, in the uh, years of 2000, you find a number of uh, critical Egyptian thinkers who uh, denounce this uh, uh, discourse of the state, of the enlightenment discourse of the state that, of course, had no credibility whatsoever. Um, and um, it believed this, most of these critical thinkers thought that the only true enlightenment was really to denounce this uh, uh, man, the mendacity of this state that did not uh, respect uh, its citizens uh, uh, and uh, was actually a state uh, of uh, uh, of um, sheer force. Uh, needless to say that they were also critical of the uh, uh, Islamic uh, violent currents. Um, so the Enlightenment discourse then in Egypt comes in these two uh, uh, groups, if you want. On the one hand, uh, a state campaign, and on the other hand, uh, the um, uh, deconstruction of this state discourse by uh, critical thinkers. And what this uh, uh, deconstruction brings about um, is the whole relationship between the, uh, uh, Egyptian intellectuals and the Egyptian state. I think this is a major issue of how... Um, uh, can Egyptian intellectuals who are most of them employees of the state be critical of the state? In other words, how is it possible to practice critical thinking uh, without distance, without concrete distance, uh, uh, um, financial and employment uh, from the state? This, I think, is a big issue in the Egyptian debate, and it has something to do with the history of the modern Egyptian state, starting with the uh, early or 19th century uh, and the foundation of the uh, Muhammad Ali uh, state. Mm -hmm. um, so it is this organic link, this bondage between um, the intelligentsia and the state that is uh, at stake uh, in the uh, Egyptian uh, discussion of Tanvir. 
Whereas in Syria, um, the Syrian state did not care to give itself any kind of such mission of enlightenment mission. Um, and in the early 80s, the Islamist movement, including the violent one, was suppressed by the infamous massacres of uh, Hama and uh, and the whole uh, uh, huge um, incarceration uh, campaign that uh, took place. So there was no Islamist Islamist voice inside the the uh, uh, Syrian uh, uh, society. Uh, you had an omnipotent. Uh, um, a uh, Syrian state uh, held by uh, a clan and um, a terrorized uh, society. And uh, it is in this, under this, in the, the, in, in this atmosphere of severe repression that Syrian thinkers then start to address this state uh, terrorism uh, that they start to... Um, this talk about enlightenment. And for them, tanwir or enlightenment is in the first place um, a critique of uh, state terror or terrorism, basically. So um, basically in, in Egypt, you have uh, a problem uh, among a lot of tanwiris of, of, uh, of the state trying to co-opt them, co-opt their discourses, um, and, a, and and the question, at least to me, seems to be how do you formulate an alternative, right? Um, between uh, you know how how can you speak without being co opted by the state? Um, in Syria, on the other hand, there's there's really not a whole lot of co optation, and the question becomes how do you express uh, reformist ideas at all, right, without being arrested or or disappeared by the regime? Yes, in Egypt, uh, I look at uh, a few concrete examples, figures of uh, the uh, uh, Egyptian intelligentsia, people who were trying to say, okay, we're not co-opted by the state, but we want to um, reform things from within the system. Uh, And of course, it it is not possible, and they fall in uh, all kinds of contradictions, and they are severely uh, criticized for it. But there is this phenomenon, this attempt to say, okay, we are, say, university professors or we are involved in the cultural institutions of the state and we're going to sort of reform the state and combat the um, Islamist uh, extremism, which is, of course, uh, uh, an understandable um, uh, uh, situation for for the uh, uh, Egyptian intellectuals who were neither Islamists um uh, nor uh, uh, total uh, say uh, servants of, of a, a dictatorship and these attempts obviously fail and i as i said i give some concrete examples of that it is only really people outside the system that dared to uh, challenge both and to say that neither this nor that can work and i think that um uh, what is also striking uh, in the Egyptian case is uh, that these intellectuals who were trying to serve the uh, Enlightenment campaign and sometimes sincere, most of the time, I think quite sincerely, believing in those values and being against fanaticism and violence, um, were at the same time quite, um, 
let me say, uh, non-trusting toward the population. The, uh, these these people are not really Democrats in the sense that they do not relate to the majority of people, thinking that well. You know the the majority of of the population might not be really inclined to uh, adopt and practice enlightenment values, and hence the elitism of these intellectuals. In other words, they don't trust people, and this was one of the uh, the important criticisms of their discourse. Uh, um, and uh, on the other hand, I think they were also some of them were aware of the ch- of the difficulty uh, to really be an enlightenment uh, figure. In other words, to really um, um, put forth the ide- ideas of democracy, ideas of uh, human rights, civil rights, liberties, and um, re- and avoid both elitism and populism. Uh, Abu Zaid, Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid, for instance, uh, said, articulated that quite well and said that it's not only for Egypt, but in general in the third world. Uh, given the uh, uh, poverty, the collapse of education in these failed states, how do you uh, relate uh, or engage people in your uh, Enlightenment discourse? Um, uh, respect them and respect their impulses or their aspirations uh, to freedom and and rationality um, and not be elitist, not be populist. How do you manage that? The man was quite aware of the uh, the difficulty of the task. Uh, so it's so easy, in other words, to be, you know, uh, to be um, um, condescending toward the people, say, anyway, you know, we will decide for them because, I mean, they, they can't play a role. We intellectuals know uh, these, understand these values, and hence we will be leading the, the nation, etc. Um well, it turns out, and he said, the critical thinkers in the already in the years uh, two thousand are very clear that unless you engage people, unless you you respect them and you address them and you involve them, you're not going to uh, really need any uh, credible uh, enlightenment campaign in Syria. Uh, uh, as you said, the state was not at all interested in. Uh, well, it could not really co-opt any intellectual in any serious uh, sense of the term because the um, the repression was quite total. So you couldn't have a thinking person uh, expressing in with any margin of freedom ideas or or criticism, uh, and have it have him or her uh, serve the state. So you have a total alienation of the intellectuals who had to write and think uh, in the very small pockets of uh, freedom at great uh, uh, risk. And uh, do it really um, in 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 small um, uh, spaces of of uh, expression, like uh, certain periodicals uh, or, or publications that were uh, uh, circulated in a hush hush way, and hence the importance of the the 
and and uh, the importance to acknowledge the lucidity and the courage of these people of these thinkers who were able to formulate articulate uh, in clear terms what the problem uh, uh, of that or if you want the problematic implications of that dictatorship on the social tissue on on human relations on the human being itself and the need then to reconstruct this is why uh, i call the the um, uh, generation of the 90s really the sisyphus Uh, generation, some of them called themselves like that in the sense that it was, they realized they were very clear about what they could achieve, namely not much except cry in the wilderness and be witnesses of what was taking place. Knowing that they cannot change much, they cannot move anything, uh, but at least uh, uh, do that work of witnessing. Then, with the um, following decade, uh, uh, I speak about the Damascus Spring and the little pockets of uh, uh, public action that were opened for a few months and how people tried to become active and to act on those ideas. Well, as we know, it didn't last long. Uh, Repression hit again until the whole uh, situation exploded uh, in the 2011 revolts. So um, there are so many threads that I want to pull on here. And for for our, our listeners, hopefully they can get a sense of of how how rich your book is just by this conversation and how many different themes that it intersects with. Um, one of the things I want to go back to um, is this question of, of Tanwir and secularism versus Tanwir and, and, and religion. Um, in the Egyptian case, um, of course, Islam is, is quite popular in Egypt for a variety of reasons, right? Some of the Tanwiris have said, you know, that the, the masses have turned to religion in order to cope with the harsh realities of, of the regime. Um, other scholars have noted that Islamist organizations like the Muslim Brothers are just very good at, at building networks, right, and, and providing a variety of social services, uh, particularly for uh, poorer people, um, uh, but also educational institutions, that sort of thing. Um, and then in uh, in Syria, uh, of course, emerges differently. But one of the major oppositions uh, to to the Assad regime, both past and present, was this sort of um, was 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 an Islamist group. It was the Muslim Brothers, right, in the early 1980s, and of course uh, today it's Daesh and and other uh, radical terrorist organizations. Um, so I'm wondering. Uh, d- does Tanwir have to be inherently secular, right? Or is there a way in which uh, this this notion of enlightenment can coexist with an Islam that would, you know, uh, reverberate or resonate with with the people? Actually, I think that uh, uh, most of re- critical thinkers uh, uh, using the term Tanwir were rather concerned with uh, a dictatorship. I think the big issue, the big um, uh, enemy, if you want, the big danger uh, was for them 
the state and the absence of uh, the rule of law and the absence of human rights and civil rights in the first place. And people realized uh, that the only way out is really to carve out as much as possible spaces of political participation. This is the big uh, concern of the Tanwir debates. Uh, I don't think that religion, I did not see uh, religion being the topic. I think for most of them, uh, religious extremism was a symptom or a, 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 I don't want to call it secondary, but part of the manifestations of the absence of political life. I think mm. uh, in, in my reading of the two sets of debates, I think what people were concerned with, what they meant by Tanwir was political participation. And what they, what they deplored really was the absence of political life, both in Egypt and in Syria, with a, uh, in different shapes and forms. Uh, the actual call for Tanwir, the enlightenment, is the call for political life which was confiscated and made impossible by uh, uh, repressive regimes. I think this is the big topic of enlightenment. Religion is not the concern. I mean, I did not find in the Syrian debates uh, uh, under the heading of Tanwir or in the Egyptian debates a real concern whether people should be Muslim or not, should be pious or not, should be believers or not. That is not what people are worried about. Uh, so I think that this is uh, the main topic uh, behind under the headline of Tanwir, political participation. So if um, if the, the major problem in in Egypt then is a question of how to how to criticize the regime, uh, but also criticize more extreme forms of of Islamism or 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 theocracy, um, you know, to to navigate this sort of alternative, um, it, it seems that you've argued um, that the political realities in Syria. Uh, would also need to to change pretty dramatically. And you talk about a couple of moments where it seemed like this might possibly happen, right? So chronologically, you start uh, with a conference in, I believe it was 1979, where the state yeah. under Hafez al-Assad invited unions and intellectuals to comment on on pressing issues, right? There, was, there were economic concerns, there were... Um, possibly the, the concern of, of a rise of political Islam. Um, but then, of course, uh, it was crushed. And then you have the Damascus Spring in 2000 to 2001 uh, with the death of, of Hafez and, and the ascension of his son uh, Bashar, uh, where once again intellectuals felt emboldened to make uh, some pretty explicit critiques against the, the current political situation um, and yet again another crackdown. Uh, people are talking today about what a new Syria might look like, right, as as the civil war begins to possibly start winding down. Um, what um, what do you think the, the chances are of, uh, you know, uh, of an opportunity for these intellectuals to once again start pushing 
serious uh, critiques against uh, the regime in, in this current moment? Are, are we going through another Promethean moment, as you talk about, or um, or are we sort of just repeating this this Sisyphean pattern of pushing a boulder up down a mountain only to have it come back down uh, at the end of the day? Wow, I'm afraid we're we're sub Sisyphean uh, uh, in the in the um, present moment. Um, what I wanted to say before I come back to your question, I was I was speaking about political participation. Now I want say and emphasize the concreteness of of the the issues here when i say people you know were demanding political participation it's not because you know they read uh, rousseau they read montesquieu and they said you know what we like these ideas and we'd rather have these ideas these things in our societies these debates come out of people experiencing the consequences of the absence of political life, of political participation. When you don't participate as a political body, as, 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 a, as people coming together to control public affairs, to have a, a, a check on public affairs and on the use of power and then the abuse of power, then what you have is really the massive robbery of the state, of the country. You have abuse of, of uh, human rights. You have incarceration. You have torture. You have uh, the collapse of the education system. You have the absence of health services. We're talking, um, not we, the people who were, whom I read, they were talk, had this, these, catastrophes in mind when they were talking about tenuir. And I think this is very important to, to emphasize. It's not a, uh, uh, although I'm an academic, I'm going to say this was not an academic exercise, you know, like writing comments on, on Montesquieu or on Rousseau. So the real, the real consequences of the absence of political participation are disastrous. General disaster. People tried several times before 2010 and 2011 to protest, to try and and uh, come into the public space, and every time they were repressed. And I think in the literature on these revolts, there were uh, uh, sort of uh, reminders of the waves and waves of uh, uh, attempts at coming back, of people coming back to the public uh, space, whether it's in Egypt or in Syria. Uh, and so when people say, we want pol political participation is uh, uh, control of, of people who are in power and to put rules and regulations to part. This is why the first time there was a tiny opportunity in Syria of people coming together and forums were, were uh, uh, constituted. People came together to discuss um, public economy, finances, uh, 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 corruption, Corruption is the big, uh, one of the big topics, uh, corruption, uh, police abuse, uh, police brutality. This is what happens when you have no control over uh, those who have power. Um, so where are we now? Will there be another uh, uh, Sisyphus, another Prometheus? I think we are now witnessing... Uh, 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 even like everybody's saying, an even bigger... A, a catastrophe, a bigger devastation. 
And um, if I want to uh, uh, use one word that is quite recurring, especially in the in the Syrian debate, that of kharab, kharab in Arabic being uh, ruin, disaster, collapse. Uh, that's the recurring term. These people were witnessing kharab in a very, as I said, collapse of education, of health, of this, of that, and. Um, so the call for Tanweer is really uh, attempts at coming out of that kharab. Unfortunately, what we witnessed both in Egypt and in Syria, particularly in Syria, is even a bigger kharab. Um, the the forces, the powers uh, uh, that were stayed and became even more ferocious. And here we are in bigger kharab. Um, so... Uh, just to to throw it out there, um, this this wasn't talked about explicitly in your book, but I'm I'm just curious if uh, in in the current moment, given the the massive displacement of people in Syria, um, whether there have been voices from diaspora, right? And I I, I couldn't help but think of this as a historian, and I, I try to bring in uh, diasporic voices in my own work. Um, where, you know, going back to the Ottomans, uh, sometimes just being out of the political situation allowed intellectuals and activists to be able to speak a bit more freely. Um, is there any attempt to construct a, a civil space? I mean, obviously not political participation in Syria, but, but just, just a civil discourse of of the current situation outside of the geographic confines of Syria? Oh, yes. I think uh, in the diaspora, uh, both the Syrian and the Egyptian, especially the Syrian, there is work that is being produced. That is, uh, there are attempts at thinking through what is what people are experiencing, which I think is an unbelievable um, um, Effort uh, and one wonders how uh, people can still think at all in the midst of so much pain and 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 destruction. But there is work being produced, and I think I try to follow it and uh, uh, sort of uh, archive it as much as possible. But there is archiving going on, and I know uh, people are working. Uh, uh, dissertations are being written on uh, cultural, uh, intellectual production of the diaspora. I think that will be an important component of any future reconstruction of Syrian um, intellectual and cultural uh, production. So uh, just stepping back a bit, I, I want to, to deal with two final uh, pretty interrelated issues that stood out to me. And we've alluded to this a bit before, um, but I, I want to talk first about the relationship between intellectuals and, and the masses, quote unquote, um, and, and the second related issue is, is this notion of reception, right, that often arises in intellectual histories of all sorts. Um, so in, in the book, you're a, a bit uh, circumspect or, or humble as a scholar on the links between the Tanwir debates and the Arab Spring uprisings. Um, but I, I want to just push you a, a little bit on this. Um, a lot of the sources that you use here um, were, were books or conferences, in some cases edited volumes of conferences, um, where these Tanwir ideas were being discussed. 
but some of the discourses were also published in very popular and widely read newspapers like uh, Beirut's uh, On the Har, for example. Um, so to the extent that you know, how, how popular are these thinkers? And, and is it possible that they might have had some influence in, in setting a discursive stage for protesters, or at least protesters who were among the, the educated or, or middle classes? Yeah, this is uh, this is a good question uh, that I would like to have answered too. Uh, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to 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 underline this point that was very important for me. I worked on ideas, and I work on ideas because I'm interested in ideas. It's not because ideas are more important than other things. Uh, and now uh, the question about the influence or the impact of these ideas on political movements. Uh, I have no idea, and this is not at all my argument. So I wanted to make sure in the book that I'm not saying that because these debates took place that we had the revolts of 2011. I just wanted to uh, make the observation that what uh, people in the Tanwir debates were evoking, were talking about, were were pointing uh, at were more or less the same things that people um, um, expressed in the Arab streets uh, during the revolts. In other words, the same concern about the demand for dignity, the demand for political uh, participation, the protest against the rejection of uh, violence, of police brutality. So I saw, if you want an echo, I saw a similarity. Um, And I think... It it makes sense if I want to take it perhaps on a simplistic common sense level, saying that these intellectuals were people like their fellow people around them, and they were experiencing the same circumstances. So it is a bit natural, perhaps, that they uh, were concerned with the same concerns. Um, Now, you could have had a case where uh, intellectuals were totally on a different uh, plane and were uh, disconnected. Yeah, but in this case, what I what I noticed was that um, they did uh, share s- quite similar concerns. Now, what I want to uh, uh, reject, I mean, uh, what I want to make sure is that I am not making any causal connection. And in that sense, I couldn't, I had no answer to the impact question. Uh, now, yeah then what value or what importance do these ideas have if we cannot really give them an impact um, role? I don't know. I think I find it um, uh, important that people were able to articulate uh, conceptually what they and their fellows were going through and that um, somehow the moral compass uh, was quite clear for them as it was clear for the masses. Now, the link between intellectuals and masses, this I will leave to fellow sociologists or historians. I could not, um, uh, I wouldn't be able to answer that question. Sure. Um, Well, I I do appreciate uh, your your book bringing in the history of ideas because I mean a lot of ink has been spilled about the Arab Spring uprisings um, and uh, uh, especially causal factors right issues of 
political repression, um, you know, rampant unemployment, neoliberalism, all sorts of things that, that uh, are talked about. And, and you mentioned a bit in, in your book, um, but it, it, it is nice to see uh, a bit of the intellectual and cultural context, um, you know, even if explicit links uh, aren't there or, you know, if, if we're not sure if they're there, it requires further study. Um, I, I think the history of ideas is very important when you're talking about any sort of uh, of massive political change. Um, just sort of my my opinion as a historian. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the last question, if if we could uh, keep you for just another minute or two, is uh, what are you working on next? Uh, what's your next project, if you can? Well, I'm very much interested in, uh, as I said, in working on um, the, the debates that followed the revolts, and particularly the 2013 turning point. I think it was the August August 2013 was a turning point both in Egypt and in uh, Syria. In Egypt, as you know, uh, the Rabia massacre, the, the uh, Sisi coming to power and massacring uh, uh, hundreds of, of uh, Islamist militants and citizens, the huge wave of uh, uh, arrests and the uh, huge repression that followed. Um, I think that moment when Sisi comes to power, what did intellectuals or some intellectuals say? How did they accompany? What were the comments? What were the words of caution or the absence thereof um, uh, uh, with which they accompanied these events? So I think that the, the 2013 is a very dramatic moment, moral and political turning point in the Egyptian revolution. And I have uh, amassed uh, a number of of writings uh, around that period. Similarly, in Syria, August 2013 is the uh, chemical uh, attack on uh, uh, the Damascus suburbs and this um, evaporation of any red line. Uh, And that also is a dramatic turning point for the Syrian revolution where uh, people uh, felt totally abandoned uh, by the world, by the world community, by governments, and um, the Assad regime having total uh, liberty to uh, massacre its population. And then what it does to uh, people who believed uh, and gave their, their best for democracy, for human rights, for civil, civil uh, uh, um, uh liberties, what did that do to to the revolutionaries in that sense? Uh, Again, there I follow uh, Syrian intellectuals. uh, And so I would like, uh, but I am a slow writer, I am a slow worker, so it will take uh, a number of years before uh, hopefully I can document because they are worth documenting, I think, and produce something on the Egyptian and Syrian 2013 uh, period. I know it's it's a conversation that historians are are just beginning to have, but but there is this really important question that I think uh, everyone who works uh, in some capacity on the Middle East has to grapple with, uh, well, and even beyond the Middle East. But being in the age of the internet, right, there is this question of of how to create an archive, as you've said, or how to how to document 
things that are not just in published works or newspapers that you know a lot of scholars are comfortable uh, consulting, uh, but how do you uh, you know preserve or or document? Uh, Twitter posts or YouTube videos and things like that. So I, I for one, look forward to uh, to watching you and, and other scholars do that and, and seeing, uh, seeing your next work uh, whenever it, it does emerge. Yes, there is indeed an abundance of material, which is somehow uh, sometimes despairing because you don't know anymore where to draw the line. But uh, abundance, I think, is good. And uh, people should take little bits and pieces and try to work on them and eventually, you know, uh, form a a literature on on this. And let me uh, throw in one last word here. I work on ideas because that's what I know a little bit uh, how to do. But Art is another fascinating uh, field here, both before and after the uh, the uprisings. I think cultural, uh, artistic history, and there is a lot of work going uh, uh, being done now, uh, is also equally fascinating. And I think the links, uh, the linkages one could make between intellectual production and artistic production would be another uh, interesting field. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us today on the show. We really appreciate you uh, speaking with us today. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. 